0: For those of you who don't know me, um, Aaron mentioned it, my name is Nathan McLean. Um, I'm the son of Kevin and Allison, and um, I'm privileged to be here with you today to celebrate um, what the Lord has done here for years and years. Um, I also just wanted to give a brief word of thanks. Um, I feel very privileged to have been sent by um, this congregation for the past two years to do ministry um, in Peoria. Um, It's been just such a blessing, and so I just wanted to express my thanks. Um, And also, I just wanted to thank you for your care over my soul when I visited, and just for your care for my family um, when we moved here uh, five years ago. And so, just grateful. Um, the elders have asked me to speak on evangelism, and so that'll be the main topic of the sermon today. Um, if that word is unfamiliar, um, the word evangelism um, is uh, defined as an event where the gospel is communicated. Okay? That would be the word Sam Chan uses in his book Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Um, it's an instance where the good news of Jesus Christ is shared, That man has sinned against God and God would be just to pour out his wrath on them for sin. But in his patience and love, he has offered forgiveness freely to all who would put their faith in Christ. And so evangelism is when that information is shared and when there is an invitation to repent. Um, And commit to it. And so, in the past years, there's been vast consensus from um, evangelical pulpits and pews that um, the command to do evangelism applies to every follower of Christ. And so, I won't belabor that point, um, but a question that I, I experience often when talking to people who are trying to obey the call to evangelism is how? how do I do this? And that question often feels tinged with confusion and defeat rather than direction and hope. And so um, it's been my prayer um, that, that this time would help to provide just direction and, and hope and joy as we try to live that call out. So if you would, um, open in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll spend most of our time in verses 9 through 13. It should be on page 561 in your pew Bibles. If I'm wrong, please forgive me, but it's in Matthew. Um, and so to give credit where credit's due, my understanding of this passage has been deeply influenced um, by Pastor Zach Rogers, where um, I'm, a, I'm a member down in Peoria. Um, but since we're dropping into this passage, I know you guys have been going through the Gospel of Luke, I believe. Um, just to, uh, here's, here's some context, since we're airlifting in. Um, by this point, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus has begun his public ministry, and he's been traveling and telling everyone, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? He's given the Sermon on the Mount, he's been healing people and casting out demons, and his fame is spreading. Some people love Jesus and want to follow him. Um, however, some of the Pharisees and scribes believe that Jesus is blaspheming. Right before this passage, Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins, and that's causing some disruption. Okay. And for some literary context, we believe that Matthew wrote this book. Okay, He's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he's already had the chance in Matthew 4 to share how Jesus called Andrew and James and John and Peter, how Jesus told them to follow him. But in this passage, Matthew gets to tell his own story. It's autobiographical, so it makes it somewhat unique. So as I believe is your tradition, would you please stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we praise you for God, your holiness. God, you are the sovereign one and God, we praise you that in your mercy, you chose to come to us in the midst of our brokenness and sin, and God, we thank you for your word, God, that all flesh is like grass and it fades, but Lord, your word will stand forever. God, I pray that during this time, you would, um, God, help us to come to a deeper God-knowledge of your word and what it teaches, and God, help us um, to see you and give you glory as a result of it. We ask that in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So it's interesting. Um, When Matthew um, starts to share his own story, the first thing that he tells us about himself is that he is a tax collector. Okay? Um, He tells us that he, being a Jewish man, um, worked for the Roman Empire that was oppressing. All of his fellow Jewish people, okay to do this, Matthew's telling us that he had committed treason against his Jewish heritage okay and as a result of that he would have been cast out by all his Jewish friends, his Jewish family, and the Jewish rabbis okay and this this enmity actually between the Jewish people and those um, who um, would ally themselves with the Romans, is very apparent. So much so that if you go um, forward in Matthew to chapter 18, Jesus is talking about church discipline. Um, and he's, he's describing um, if a brother in, yeah, it's right here. He says, this is describing a brother who's in unrepentant sin. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, everybody knows that if there is one thing Jews already understand how to do, it's how to distance themselves from tax collectors um, like Matthew. It's part of their culture and custom. Okay? And so that makes Jesus' actions towards Matthew in this story remarkable. Jesus, a now famous Jewish rabbi, looks at Matthew in the middle of his treasonous, greedy Roman tax booth and says, follow me. Instead of starting his interaction with a rebuke or leaving him at a distance, Jesus gives him an invitation to leave it all behind, okay? And we read that Matthew rose and followed Jesus, all right? But then the scene changes right away, okay? There's no transition word between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. We go straight from Matthew's tax booth, to Matthew's house, okay? Evidently, Matthew has invited Jesus over, um, a few of the disciples that are following Jesus and some of Matthew's friends. Um, but if we read Luke's event, uh, account of this event, I think we get a better sense of what's going on there. So if you could put Luke 5, 29, perfect. It says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. Levi is Matthew. Um, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. There are two important words you need to see here. Large company and great feast, okay? This is not um, a small, intimate gathering. This is, a, this is a party thrown by a rich tax collector with a bunch of people there. And oddly enough, Jesus and his disciples aren't off in the corner of a house, but you can read um, in verse 10 of our passage um, that he was reclining at table with many tax collectors and sinners, They were all right next to each other, okay? But then the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, they show up, okay? After all, right before this, they did um, assume that Jesus was blaspheming. So they're kind of curious what he's doing. They want to know more. And so they check Twitter, figure out that Jesus is at Matthew's house, and they walk over. And so somehow or another, um, they get there and they see what's going on. They see Jesus sitting with tax collectors, sinners, And so they ask some of Jesus' disciples, and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, your master has just been saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That doesn't look like the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And and part of trying to dissect why the the Pharisees are asking this question is a, is a little tricky, okay? Part of it is likely self-righteous, okay? In general, when you read the Gospels, you would see the Pharisees priding themselves on staying holy by putting distance between them, between others who were less sinful than they were. Okay, If you were to read Luke 18, 9 through 14, you would see Jesus telling a parable that involves a Pharisee going into the temple and praying loudly, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. So part of their question, um, I think, is coming from self-righteousness. But I, I also think there must be a bit of genuine curiosity that's driving this question. Why why are you doing this, Jesus? Because he's doing something very different that any other Jewish teacher is doing, and they want to know why. Um, Something about Jesus doing this is raising red flags for Pharisees. Um, If you were to read Chuck Smith's commentary on this passage, um, he notes that in this day, you would never eat with anyone Unless you wanted to be identified with that person, okay? Culturally, sharing food only ever happened with people that you were similar to, or you wanted to be similar to, okay? And and here in America, uh, we still retain a lot of that, right? If, I mean. If, I, if my dad found out that uh, every morning um, before work at 7 a.m. I was grabbing lunch with a biker gang, I wouldn't be surprised that if uh, one day he asked if I wanted to borrow his old leather pants, okay? That wouldn't be uh, surprising. It's uncommon to share food with people that we don't want to associate with. It's an intimate thing, all right? And so, um, but the, if we read the whole host of God's word on this, we see that Jesus doesn't just eat with sinners here. This is far from an isolated event. Um, If we were to go over to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking about the costs of what it looks like to follow him, all right? Um, But then Luke 15, one says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So again, we see the same circumstance occurring. Um, And for the rest of, if you were to read the whole rest of Luke 15, um, Jesus tells them parables. And it's no coincidence that when you read those parables, the ending of which is the parable of the prodigal son, you would see two things. You would see a father representing God who is feasting and eating with someone who is a sinner. And then two, you would see someone representing a Pharisee questioning why the Father's doing that. Okay? Jesus is not very subtle in his practice or in his teaching on these things. And so Jesus hears this question from his disciples. Maybe he sees them from afar or the disciples go and get him. But either way, he responds to the Pharisees. And if you'll look at me at verse 12, it says that when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Okay? He compares himself to a doctor and says, it's only right that doctors should be around the sick. Okay? is a logical response. You know, the COVID vaccine won't do a whole lot of good to New York if it's sitting in Chicago. All right? So first, Jesus appeals to their reason, um, but then Jesus responds in a different sense. In verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So in this instance, Jesus says that the Pharisees are, are um, he, he, he pulls a quote from Hosea 6. 6. Um, you can check the cross-reference there. He's quoting from a scripture that they would know. And he, then he tells them that they have no idea what that passage is talking about. He says that they would need to actually go and learn what it means. And so the question we should ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to desire, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice? I'll quote another passage from Matthew that I think sheds good light on this. Um, If you were to put the slides on Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders again, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In this instance, Jesus tells the Pharisees, their right to follow the law, to tithe, even if they're plants. In other words, to do sacrifice. But they are wrong to have failed to practice justice and mercy and faithfulness, okay? they're right to do sacrifice, but they've neglected mercy, okay? And so Jesus tells the Pharisees that despite all of their studying and reading, they have fooled themselves into believing that God desires their religious observances more than he desires them to emulate his heart towards sinners. He says that they have misunderstood what God's desire for them is. And, and keep in mind that Jesus, Jesus applies this to the Pharisees very personally. Um, he, he, he doesn't say that their synagogue had the wrong vision statement, but that these men's lives had nothing to do with the weightier matters of the law, if you will. That's why he tells them to go, learn what this means. Go, find the scroll of Hosea, search the scriptures. And if the Pharisees did what Jesus commands them to do, um, and they left the house party, they went to the synagogue, lit some candles, um, and read the scroll of Hosea, from where Jesus quoted, this is what they would see. They would read the beginning of Hosea, and they would see a prophet named Hosea, oddly enough, And they would hear God tell Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. It's confusing. And then they would see the prophet Hosea and the prostitute have three children together. But then they would read that the prostitute leaves Hosea and their three children and begins to resume her life of prostitution. Um, Hosea's wife willfully rejects him unrepentantly, And leaves. But if they kept reading, they would hear God tell Hosea, Go get your wife back. Even though she is willfully sleeping with another man, get her back. Do not divorce her. Do not punish her. Even though that would be your right under the law to do so, but go and buy her back. Okay? Hosea would have had every right under the law to file for divorce. But God tells him to do the opposite. God tells him to walk directly to his prostitute wife's tax booth, if you will, and tell her, follow me. Hosea shows us a picture of what mercy looks like. And so Jesus' practice of eating with sinners confused the Pharisees because their understanding of covenant obedience, included fasting and praying and tithing, and these are good things, but they had nothing to do with sinners. Um, These men loved sacrifice, but they didn't love sinners. And for the first time, they met a man who didn't just love those who were clean, but those who were dirty, and that blows their mind. And that's the beauty that Matthew sees in Jesus, when, when he was told and asked to follow him. Um, that's exactly what Matthew learned when he met Jesus, I think what he wanted to highlight in sharing his own story. And so I hope by this point um, you can read Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and understand um, a bit of what it's about. Um, but there's likely A few of you here who are panicking because I got up here and I told you I was going to teach you about evangelism, and I haven't said that word in the past ten minutes. And so um, bear with me here; we're we're getting there. Um, When when I think about how to apply this passage, um, I think when we think about how to apply it, it feels pretty plain. You know, Matthew made this feast, and the first thing that he's doing after meeting Jesus is introducing people to Jesus, the first thing he's doing is telling others about him. And many people have shared that application of the passage um, and they've said that it should be, we should walk away here thinking that I need to do a better job of introducing people to Jesus like Matthew did. And it feels like the best application is if we were all to leave and head into work tomorrow, maybe a bit early as people are coming in, and as you're sitting in your meeting, you want to bolster up some courage. Um, and before, as, as the meeting's over, before people get up to leave and do their job, you, you say, hey, guys, I'm going to start a Bible study um, on Friday mornings, uh, 6 a.m. I'll, I'll, I'll buy breakfast. Uh, come, come 30 minutes before work. Um, just want to let you guys know that. I hope to see you there. Okay? or maybe 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 it's something else you know maybe maybe you're, you're you're shoveling your driveway because that's all that people do here in Minnesota for 6 months out of the year and and you see people and you see your neighbor who you've lived next to for 5 years and but you've never really told him about what you believe or who you are or um and so you but you finally see him out there and so you walk up and you say hey David it's uh it's good to see you man um dude, I, know, I don't know you all that well, and you don't know me all that well, but um, I'm a Christian, and I want you to know that, and um, I was just curious where, where you think your standing is with God. And I think if you walked out of here and did those things, that would be so awesome. More people should do those things. That's good and wonderful and bold. But while that's good, I, I, I think that's missing the point of this passage. Here's why. The Pharisees had less of a problem with Jesus teaching sinners. What was blowing their minds was that Jesus was eating with sinners. If the Pharisees walked by the party that Matthew was showing, and they saw Jesus pitching out Bible studies or telling these guys about God's love and justice or what it meant to pray or how to honor the Sabbath, then there probably would have been less confusion But the thing that's bothering the Pharisees is that he's not doing those things. He is sitting, enjoying an intimate cultural practice with those who don't know God. He's not teaching with them, he's eating with them. He didn't wait until these people followed him like Matthew to spend his time with them, he did it anyway. And so while we do need to grow in boldness in declaring the gospel to others, um, I think that this passage is telling us first and foremost to be like Christ, we need to eat with sinners. If you were to flip forward a few chapters in Matthew, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, for John... Came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, Well, he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus spent so much time with non religious, unrepentant, sinful people that people accused him of being like them in their sin. It was Jesus' custom and practice to be friends of sinners, to eat with them. If you were to flip back four chapters in Matthew, you would also see that this was his teaching. It says in Matthew chapter five, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus teaches us that that everyone, regardless of your faith, loves those who are like them, but that the mark of a Christian is that they will love those who are not, that they will greet those who are not. And I think culturally, um, we've got it flipped. We can think that loving Jesus means to distance ourselves from the wicked, forgetting that in God's love, he walked towards them. Okay. Um, But being friends with sinners is messy, and it's confusing. I think Travis alluded to this earlier. Um, If I can share a story from campus, um, bear with me. Um, Halloween is uh, everybody's favorite holiday on campus, because it means you get to dress up like a lunatic and act like one and not feel any guilt about it. Um, And so Monday, after all of the um, uh, festivities were over, if you will, I was sitting down with this group of uh, of fraternity guys that I know and I love, and and they were telling me about how plastered they got all weekend, um, how they were it wasn't just friday night it wasn't just saturday morning or saturday night it was all of them and more and um they were sharing with me how they had finally um gotten to be with um the women that they were pursuing um and, and i was just sitting there and i i just you know it, it, it's it's messy you don't know whether to rebuke them or call them call them out but also you want to be with them and be their friends and um but then one of the fraternity guys said, well, hey, I, I, can I show you a picture of my costume? I thought I killed it, you'll think this is awesome. So I said, okay, Parker, I'll, I'd, lo- I'd love to see your costume. And he shows me a picture and it's him dressed as Jesus in a bar with a fifth and um, totally gone. I just sat there and I was like, oh, like what, what am I supposed to say? This is horrendous. What, what am I supposed to say to those things? Sinners, they say things you don't agree with, you don't know whether to bring it up right away, they crack jokes you're not supposed to laugh at, they have different viewpoints with you, but the whole time you're with them, you don't want to make it awkward, and then they'll finally share things about their life that's personal, like they're having a hard time with their girlfriend, but you know that they're sleeping together, and so you don't know whether to empathize with them and just be with them in that moment, or to tell them they're in sin because they are, and they need to know that, you know, it's just messy. Being with sinners, is hard, it's confusing. Um, And so I think the temptation for many of us is to settle for a life of quiet and Bible study and prayer and sacrifice, more than we seek a life filled with mercy, filled with sinners. About a month ago, um, I was at a coffee shop by myself um, to get a reprieve from campus work. Um, This was about a month and a half after school started. Travis mentioned earlier that the first semester of campus work is a sprint, and he is correct. Um, But a member of my church was there. He's about my age, and he saw me reading in the corner, Um, and um, we talked for a little while. And so... It was um, Thursday, and so I asked him, um, hey, Daniel, um, are you you going to church volleyball this evening? I know that event happens all week. He said, well, I've been doing some volunteer firefighter stuff, um, and a few of the guys that I met, they're, they're going out tonight, and they invited me, and they're not Christians, they need the gospel, so I would really like to go to volleyball, but I think I'm gonna hang with them. And when he said that, I was just amazed. That's awesome. I got to see Daniel uh, willingly laying down his right to be with the body so that he could care for those outside. Now, if you're at all like me, um, you don't need any help committing to the body of Christ, okay? You love things like service. This is wonderful. And this is our right that's been given to us by God's grace but you do need help and a push to serve those outside of it. We can quickly become so focused on being Christian, you know, going to Christian coffee shops and Christian softball leagues and Christian soccer teams and Christian schools and Christian friends and Christian lunches and dinners and Christian music. We can do those things so much that we don't have time for non-Christians, that we don't have time for sinners. But when we read this scripture, I just think we have to ask this question, can I really say that I am imitating Jesus if I'm not loving sinners? Can I really say that I am passionate about being Christ-like if I'm not being like Christ? And don't hear what I'm not saying? We should not be persuaded by sin. You know, Psalm Psalm 1 is very clear. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, okay? We should not um, participate in sin. But Jesus also says in Matthew 16, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And that is what I'm saying. I believe this passage is saying. And so I hope that at least one of the Pharisees would have actually listened to Jesus' command. And they, and they went home, you know, they talked to their wife, they went, they put their kids to bed. The next day, they went to synagogue, they read Hosea. It blew their mind that God would have mercy. And then he went home the next day. Um, and that when him and his wife were sitting in bed and discussing what their weeks would look like, and that they said it, I hope that they went home and they set a time time to sacrifice, to go to synagogue, to pray, to seek God through his word. But I also hope that they went home and they planned to allot time and money towards the weightier things of the law, that when they planned their week, they ordered their schedules around eating with sinners. Okay. Evangelism is an event. It is when the information of Christ's Death and resurrection is shared, and there's an invitation to respond in faith, okay? It's an event. And every Christian is commanded to do so. And uh, thankfully, we're all equipped to do so. Turns out the only thing you really need to do or know in order to share the gospel is to know the gospel, okay? God is faithful to change the hearts of men. It depends not on earthly wisdom. Um, but Jesus shared the gospel in many ways, um, but particularly in this passage, he ate with sinners. And so I hope that, th- that-, that by highlighting our need to imitate him in this way, gives you a clear next step, whether that's eating with your coworkers or eating with your neighbors or, or others, if you're uh, uh, with your pickleball club, you know, it- it's-, it's-, it's just my hope Um that this gives you clear direction and hope for what the Lord can do through you um, and also what the Lord has done for you. Um, if you're, so if you're in this room um, and you know and love and believe in the Lord Jesus and you're not participating in merciful relationships with the lost, this is an invitation to do so. And if you're in here and you do not know Jesus Christ, I have good news for you. Matthew got the unique privilege of serving Jesus a meal, okay? Um, I can't do that. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for his saints, okay? But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is in heaven right now, and he is not being idle. He promised that right now he is spending his time preparing a house and a feast for those who follow him. He gave his life so that he may free us and forgive us of our sin, which we have willfully committed, but he has also done so so that he may eat with us who are sinners. And so let us spend this life that we have been given by him in his honor, imitating him, and looking forward to, and longing and waiting for the day when Christ returns, and we are seated around his throne at the wedding feast of the Lamb, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So let's long for that day, church. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your great grace towards us that God, out of love, Lord, you chose to lay down your rights to come and be with us. That, God, you, God, had perfect communion within yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet you chose to leave that for a time so that we may join you there. Jesus, you are our ultimate example of what it means to love and show mercy to others. And, Father, we, I just pray, God, that you would help um, God, and me to uh, seek to do mercy, God, that you would seek help, help Thief River Falls, God, to be a church that is marked by mercy and being friends with sinners, that we would all go joyfully and proclaim your goodness to the ends of the earth. So, Father, we ask all this in your name. Amen.